0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome to the One Within All to Another episode of Interverse Podcast, and it is a jam-packed show tonight. We are going to be covering some leftovers, if you will, of uh, The God's Acre for Winds of the Soul, fourth book in the Spirit World series by my boy Dylan Sikosio. Oh, he's that way. <laughs> and this is also a bit celebratory because not that long ago, Amazon has finally approved the audiobook for said text that we're going to be discussing tonight. Although this will just be a portion, a sliver. Of the incredible esoteric serving up of knowledge that you could get by checking that book out. I recommend getting the ebook, the physical copy and the audiobook. But you know, if you got to just pick one, maybe the audiobook because <laughs> you also support me with that. And we're going to be discussing the symbolism of the ark or the Argo Nav- Navis or the Arga or the many other names for this sacred ship that has everything to do with the metempsychosis and the renewal of the world, the doctrine of world ages, heroes and eras. There's so much on the table. I made some slides based on what Dylan had offered for the particular topics he wanted to cover. And of course, last but not least, we're joined by Mario Garza of Symbolic Studies, who is also an incredible researcher with quite a vast perspective on the stormy seas of Uh, saviors and redeemers and (laughs) lingams and yonis and all the different things that come about whenever you start looking deeply at one of the most incredibly unbelievable fables of all time, (laughs) yet that are so widely believed that there's even a replica arc in, I think, Kentucky. But anyway, there's a lot of symbolism on the table, a lot of conversation to have. So we better get into it. Make sure you follow Mario Garza at Symbolic Studies on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, the like. Dylan Sikosio over on Instagram at Spirit World. He's also got a Substack, which I need to make sure and add to the show notes. I forgot a link to that. And his Amazon page is going to be in the show description as well, where you can find copies of all his books. And especially exciting, that audio book that I aforementioned. So welcome, everybody, in the chat. Thanks for hanging out with us on a Monday night. And uh, please share the podcast wherever you might think it would be well received. Hit that little Joe Rogan thumbs up and uh you know buckle up because we're about to get into it
1: welcome my guys how you guys doing awesome thanks to be here good to see you
2: both yeah likewise i'm solid i think it's very synchronistic that we're going to be talking about arc symbolism during aquarius which is the sign of floods so that's interesting
1: yes sir yes ma'am let's get it going so um one of the things that I wanted to bring to the table that is just totally different than what other people do is I look at things from a cultural perspective and in language and try to get things through historicity. Whereas interpretating, uh, sorry, interpreting things isn't so much my specialty unless it's part of a like an initiatory system that has already been observed. So I think I can bring a lot to the table that'll help people look at mythology different, but specifically help you guys look at um, when you do all your shows on like interpreting stuff, how would you look at something if you knew it was actually from a different culture versus the one you've been taught it's from. And so I think I'm going to bring some things that are going to shake up the chronological uh, status quo. uh, I don't know, story arc, if you will, of what they've told us regarding the ancient world leading up into the common era and, uh, some of this pertains to, uh, the astronomy and all of, all of these, uh, asterisms, right? The difference, in case people don't know the difference between constellations, which are, are very modern, um, they used to just call them asterisms and it's like clusters. So, like, the way to how you would identify a constellation would be like if you look at Ursa Major, the thing that is the asterism is the Big Dipper, right? Everyone knows. That to see that or the little dipper and then you know where to find Polaris from the little dipper and all that stuff. And so there's certain things regarding these subjects that may give you guys new insight on the Argo, the Ark, the Yoni, the Naval, Delphi, et cetera. And this is all from the framework of this book or it's in the back, um, God's Acre, but there's a lot of stuff that, uh, has come to the surface that is kind of seated in my other books that came out since then, uh, the Holy sailors. And then also this is going to be coming out next week, Terminalia. And so I'll be able to show people how some of this stuff finds its way to Mexico. Wait, and next week. Yes, sir. I thought you were saving it for May Day. No. Next Whoa. week, baby, ter- the, I said it would be published on the date of its title, Terminalia, The Last Day of the Ancient Year. <laughs>
0: okay, I, I saw that and I thought that must mean 5-1, but I didn't fully read it. Okay, wow, so we no, got a new book so, coming that,
1: that quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's I've been very prolific over the last year. And uh, that's, you know, there's one thing I it have. comes with being and healthier yeah. and stronger, right? Yeah, and, if, and, and not having to work two jobs. And like being like a vampire, you know, whatever. We're not going to get into that. I'm talking about LA, you know, being at certain places are just this suck the life out of you. And so, yeah, I've just all I've been doing is this work for the past year. So I've, I've been able to be prolific. But what I'd like to preface what I bring to the table today with you guys is a quote from Sir William Jones that I include in the newest book coming out. And he said or he wrote Thus, I have attempted to trace with a confidence, continually increasing as I advanced, a parallel between the gods adored in Greece, Italy, and India. But which was the original system and which is the copy, I will not presume to decide. I am persuaded, however, that a connection existed between the old idolatrous nations of Egypt, India, Greece, and Italy long before the birth of Moses. Now, for anyone who doesn't know who Sir William Jones is, maybe just Google him. He spoke like eight languages. He's from the nobility. He's in the East, East India Company. Uh, he, was, he was like a governor or something appointed in like uh, India and all that stuff. So a lot of this great work that was done in the 1800s, 1700s, it comes from guys like this who were finally getting over to these places after they were establishing trade with them. And they were able to learn a lot. And not only did he speak eight languages but he was like proficient in another like 15 assuming like he had a dictionary or a lexicon at his hand. Like the guy was like, he's tight. So for even him, he's not presuming to decide. I think I'm not calling bullshit, but I think given his status and his position, I think people like that had to tread very lightly when they started realizing the connections of all these cultures. And, um, the story of Argos it's an interesting one because if you look at it just from peripherally it's as, as much astrotheology as everything else. right You have Jupiter turned yo or IO, the daughter of Jasus, whose name is essentially Jesus or jassius that's the pagan Jesus Christ, right into a cow, so Juno, his wife, wouldn't catch him cheating, right? And then you have Argus Panoptes, a servant of Hera. Hera means the lady in Greek. It's a title for the goddesses, particularly uh, Juno. And she was tasked, uh, sorry, he or it, the creature, Argus Panoptes, um, was a tasked to watch over you. And its hundred eyes, in my opinion, I think might connect it with a century or perhaps Hecate. And remember, you sent me and Gabe something about Hecaton, meaning a hundred. Um, however, a century in a company uh, relating to like a military, a company of eighty men in the Roman military divided into ten sections of eight. And it's a, as well as a guardian or a centurion. So it could, you know, could be like a Cetus um, type creature. Um, but some accounts say Yo wandered to Egypt, became Isis, the wife of Osiris and Apis. Some accounts, say Jupiter tasked test or Mercury to kill Argus. Uh this plays into the Argonauts. But when I look at this, i the term that I've come to call all this shit is farago. It's a mishmash. And farago basically is like making like porridge and shit in like the Roman days or whatever. So you mix in all the grains like faro. So it's a it's a mix ma- a mishmash. Uh, clusterfuck, whatever you want to call it, but a Farago is the is the way I call this stuff because each and every one of these deities you can sh- show at different times was ascribed to something else. And I think that was one of the first things that led me into this situation was when I learned that Yo was originally an old name for the sun and the glyph represented. You still see it in our lowercase i. It's like the finger of a priest pointing at the sun. And that was, uh, you'll see that root, that yo, it's in a lot of different uh, deities that we'll get into. But then it, like that, I o is also I u, it also became yao, I a o, which would be in Greek, iota, alpha, omega. That's why you see him say, I am the alpha and omega. You have when this cult returned to China, Emperor Yao, the sun, right? All this solar archetype shit. And then you see this uh, leading up to like the second century BC, you see them reassigning the names of the planets from what they were to now they're assigning these, uh, these particular gods to the planets from the Greek pantheon. And then the Romans followed suit. And it's, it's hard to know what you're looking at with these myth- myths because it's been changed up so much. And then what I'm going to drop on you guys today is going it's going to you know shake things up a little bit differently. And you know, anyone who's read my work, like, you want to know about Phoenicians and language and how you can prove certain stuff, This is it. It'll change your life chances of narr- narrating it right now. But according to Bishop Thurwall, I'm going to say this quote, "Do you guys want to jump in? Feel free? Stop me at any time, guys. Yeah let, let me, me, let me just I've say a couple of things say. real fast is that I've been
0: reading. Faber I think it's mm-hmm. George Faber uh origins of pagan idolatry and it's from 1815 or somewhere somewhere and I came across the statement by him that the cow the sacred cow like yo or Hathor is a symbol of the boat and the cave so my point in bringing that up because <laughs> Farago is a great word I think that modern the modern new age Thing that is going on is akin to what maybe happened when Christianity took root, that it was a big mis- mishmash of all the things and then it kind of got codified into a dogmatic religion. So imagine if the new, the modern New Age movement, some kind of leaders or the state more more accurately, the state would take over that and say, this is our state religion and sort of make rules about it, Right. But <laughs>
1: so, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I thought you were
0: done. Well, I'll just finish by saying what's important about the Argo, the Ark mythos, is how it's one of the core allegories that basically all the other stories can symbolically overlay to, even if they don't seem related. The mythos of the seed, the corn myth, it, you know, uh, Adam is Noah. And once you see the pattern, And that's what the spirit world books are really helpful for. Once you start to see the pattern, then you'll know what you're looking at in other forms.
1: Yeah. And let's just do a real go over this real practical. Why they do this. It's hard for religious people to understand this because they believe the status quo that like somebody in the ancient world before the times of couriers, before the times of easy travel and all this stuff, they. um. Basically, they were able to convert people into these religions by building it off of the ones that already existed. So like when you have like the Gentiles, Mercury was already the Logos to them. So it's very easy to ease into Jesus being the Logos. You know what I mean? It never happened the way they said it happened. Right. It's always, all these, the priestcraft is going to be the tool of empire. Right. So it's, you're going to either get stuff at the tip of the sword or you're going to convert anyways. Cause you don't know any better. And as a common person, you are not privy to any of this. It's basically all tradition. And so the people who really had this system, it's the priests. Right. And when you look at everything around the world where you can see where they've been, what are the things you need? You need language. You need astronomy. Right. Because in order to navigate by night and all these other things, you need the science of the stars in order to build the temples based on astronomy. You need the science of the stars. So you need the priests, but the priests need the uh, mariners and the merchant class to do the business and stuff. And then they also need the masons to build the temples for them everywhere. And so even though they might not be the same genome, the same people philologically, And not feel uh, ethnologically. Excuse me. um, What you're seeing is there is definitely a system of priests, of masons, of uh, navigators, of merchants going all over the world. And some places there's no inscriptions to justify it, or to like um, prove that it was them who did it. But it's like finding Victorian architecture in some part of the world, you would know that at the very least, the somebody from Britain taught those people, if it weren't, if it weren't the Britons themselves, somebody taught them that architecture that's from Britain, right? You know what I mean? It's, there is a, a system and, and, um, mythology and astronomy is no different. And so what I wanted to broach with you guys today is the idea that some of the stuff that we have been taught is Greek is not Greek. And so Mario, do you, do you want to jump in? Do you want to bring some stuff to the table with Argo or anything? Uh, not quite gone? yet, man. Go for okay, it. I just, I just want to make sure you're not being left out. I appreciate out. Okay. it. Yeah, yeah, jump yeah, in. Don't be shy. You got um, it. You got it. According to Bishop Thurwall in his history of Greece, the precise date of the first opening of the intercourse between Phoenicia and Greece is wholly uncertain but we see no reason for doubting that it existed several centuries before the time of Homer. And we are inclined to consider this as the most powerful of all the external causes that pro- promoted the progress of civilized life and introduced new arts and knowledge into the islands and shores of the Aegean, which in Celtic, that word also means ocean. It has been suspected that the Phoenicians are often described in the legends of the Greeks, seas under different names. The Telkinis exhibit so many features which remind of the Phoenician character that it is difficult to resist the conviction that they are the same people, disguised by poetical fictions. Now, Chance, if you have those slides of Thalassa and Pontus or, or anything like that you want to start putting up, I'll start explaining what these are. Now, the telekines. Maybe
0: if you want, we can kind of walk through the slides in the order uh, yeah. by based, based off of the text that we, we had going. So uh, we'll get to those if you want to step through the few slides I have first and just how let you guys bounce off of what you see up on screen.
1: So this is interesting. I'm about to get into some of these stars, but one Do of the things. Skip to what these, you just
0: mentioned first.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we can see Argo, right? You can see how it's depicted. But what I'm about to show you is that certain things are not where there's no like set. Um, how do I describe this? There's no set imagery, right? Like where when you see the artistic interpretations of this, there's no Canopus has to be located on this part of the artwork. And that's significant when we get to that word, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm
0: glad you, you mentioned that. I just that's, got That's what book. I wanted to kind of show you. I just got this book uh, on Matheson's recommendation. It is The Stars, A New Way to See Them by H.A. Ray. This guy also, interestingly enough, created the Curious George series of books. But <laughs> <laughs> he escaped from World War II Germany right before things popped off. And it was as if he had some sort of ancient knowledge about the way that the ancients actually like saw the images in the sky. And this book is really helpful with alternative drawings of constellations, sometimes including more or less stars than what you get on a Google image search, which I've noticed just in the last year. Trying to search image searches for constellations is just getting worse and worse. Like you can't find anything good. It's it's bizarre. but. Why I bring this book up and why someone might find it helpful is because like when you can see multiple ways that a constellation might look like Hercules being either a square with almost like a swastika shape of limbs coming off of him versus how he's depicted in this text with with uh, that kneeling position holding the Vajra over his head.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How many people are looking at Hercules in the sky as a constellation versus the 12 labors carved on the back of St. Peter's chair in Arabic? Which is (laughs) the sun. You know, there's there's different things, and that's why I say it's a farago, because people have taken everything and done all this stuff in the modern era, very recently, I might add, but really it starts in like the Middle Ages. You really see it ramp up in the Middle Ages, and that has led to a lot. But I think what I'm about to get into is why some of this stuff, um, got mixed up with the collapsing of empires and all that stuff. But if you want to keep going with the slides, let's see what you got. Um, but I really wanted to, you know, for the next, I wanted to be able to show people Thalassa and Pontus because th- this is some of the architectural stuff that you can, um, oh yeah, that's, so that was what I was saying earlier with Argos Panoptes, right? The hundred eyes or whatever. Um, if you get to, uh, I'm going to just read, but look for like, you know, the, the children, like the people on the dolphins backs or whatever. So, uh, the telkines, they're the children or the sons of the sea. Right. And if you look at like my name, like my dad's a mariner, I grew up, he, he's, he, he liked to build like Chinese junks and stuff. Oh, this is perfect. With his bare hands. We'd live on the junks. He'd sail all around the country and stuff is really cool. Um, he named me Dylan after the son of the sea in Celtic and Welsh mythology. And so Jesus is also the son of the sea, Mare, right? That's Latin. That's where Mary comes from. And then you have Hermes, uh, Buddha. They're the sons of Maya. You have the Phoenician Adonis, which is the son of Mira. Uh, You have the parents of the Telkanines uh, or the Telkanines uh, are Thalassa and Pontus. And Thalassa is going to be on the right side of the screen. Pontus is going to be in the middle. Now, note that root, Pontus, it's in Pontifex Maximus and its relation to the Holy See. Because like I just said, there's a connection between the navigators, the priests and the masons. They're all in the same order, different branches, right? They have to be in order to control this system. And so Pontus is kind of like, if you were to look at it in Greek, it's kind of like a, a poetic way of describing the sea. Like if you could imagine something like the great wide open or something like that right but it still is a personification of the sea and do you have um uh arian in the on the dolphin's back well i have it's a couple okay. more okay slides okay of yeah keep going through them, keep going through them. yeah well, we can look at this just a bigger yeah image so you see him on the little side. dolphin's backs
0: yeah and this is also where you get like the root of the location thessaly
1: yeah and thessaly is important because uh i got that i that uh Dr. Clark's inscription. We'll we'll get to that. Don't worry. But yeah, there's, (laughs) there's some, there's some wild stuff that's about to go down. Uh, Do you have uh, the Pontus from the Phoenician city? Anyways, Uh, I'm going to keep you talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yep. See that. So that is a, that was, that city was established long before Carthage, right? A lot of people are under the impression. We'll get to that. So, the, the, um, you'll see those guy, the telekines, uh, telekines depicted on the dolphin's back. Well, if you look up Arion, which is basically Orion, it's the same word philologically. That's on the, he's the myth on the dolphin's back. And that's where the, there he goes. That's where he is, uh, that's where, uh, Jonah in the whale's belly comes from. And so what you'll see, even in that vase, can you see where it says that is? It's going to be Atruria. It's Etruscan, And I, the reason I call them Etruscans is the S-C in Latin is pronounced, it makes an S-H sound. And the Latins are direct descendants of the Etruscans. It's their language. Um And so what's interesting about a lot of these myths is that they appear to be Greek, yet you need to go to Italy to prove some of this stuff. And the artifacts uh, established there, they're left by the Phoenicians because the Phoenicians' first great, great colony was Italy. So places like Crete and Cyprus, where they are celebrated, correspond to places and courses that the Phoenicians are supposed to have pursued when they began their maritime adventures. And the Telekines forged Poseidon's or Neptune's trident and Saturn's sickle saturn is also Cronus, right so in general there's so like already,
0: a like what's important there is the whole motif of the smith yes and that is they, a worldwide labors that's super worldwide in terms of prominence like we're saying the Telkines forged the, the you know implements of these gods right so they must be in some way like older or more more knowledgeable than the gods and that's whatever that come generation in big time. is
1: yeah, when you look in then, the Me- you know like in Mexico, chance you know like because they didn't have the ability to forge this shit, so how are they building these things with no tools to forge it?
0: Yeah, exactly. They're running around with sticks and rocks, <laughs> but they have these giant megalithic uh, structures going on. Now, like I found, even I was reading Hamlet's Mill recently, mm-hmm. and that's uh, <laughs> a bit, a bit pretentious in the way it's written, but it's got some really good mythological information in there. And they even pointed out that the Urktusk people. You know, once we get the name shaman, that whole system of shamanism that they that their shamans claim that they learned from smiths, that smiths were like the older brother to the shaman. Interestingly enough, which makes a lot of sense. It's this. And how theme, many gods I, do you
1: see with like those type of forge tools? Yeah. And this is
0: even uh, this is a statue supposedly of a Talquine. And he's got this bent sword and it's a hammer. And his hand
1: up there. Isn't this freaking awesome? How many times have people seen that statue and not known what it is? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Like it's so so cool because like we've, we've also like, I mean, I've seen that go around the internet tons of times, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, it's cool just to like, there's so much that's like under the surface that has been swept under the rug because they're protecting. They've got to preserve the mosaic history. And in order to preserve the mosaic history, you need to basically wipe out, everything we're talking about.
2: Hey Dylan, uh, uh, or real confuse quick. it with other things. Yeah. Uh, is there a specific story regarding the uh, crab claws coming out of the heads there? That's very interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Yeah. Before. It's like a lobster.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, I don't know if there's a specific story like in terms of what I, it kind of looks like. So like when you see it on, um, on the right side, if you can, if you can find like a bigger picture of that, You'll see it almost looks like that is the the oars of the ship, you know what I mean yeah in a way, right. but i don't I don't know for sure because i don't the problem with a lot of this stuff is there's no inscriptions, and mm. so that's why it's hard for me like that's why I try not to take positions on stuff that mm-hmm. there isn't something in the real world to back it up unless it's like you know there's like a couple different indicators you know, but yeah that that in itself it's representative, it looks like it's representative of um you know, whether it's Poseidon, I don't know, whether, whether it's uh, Neptune, Typhon, because that's kind of like who they serve, if you will. You know, they're all as, uh, aspects of the sea. How they want to personify that is up to them. I can't, If there's no inscription, it's hard for me to, 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 you know, nail it down. Sure, sure. I think it's very interesting. It is. And, well, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chance.
0: Well, I'll throw out a little bit of info on this so that you can just know once you've picked up the keys that we... Referred to all the time. <laughs> that, well, Pontus is born of no father. So there must be a virgin birth. Well, who is the virgin giving birth? The earth. The earth. And even the name Earth actually philologically comes back to Arga. It's it was Eartha. Eartha and Arga, kind of the same root, same word. And one thing that's important to recognize whenever you're looking at this stuff is that whether it is Adam being buried in the ground when he dies or the flood hero going into the boat the earth is the ark so they're looking at this like a basically the way it would be said was the ark or the arga is the microcosm the earth is the megacosm and so the hero going into the ground going into the cave going into the ark is all symbolic of the Destruction and regeneration of the world or a new era.
1: Yeah. And the seasons too. Right. So like a lot of times these are all gods. They're, they're gods of the underworld. doesn't matter if it's Hades, uh, Pluto, what, whatever they're going through winter. Cause winter is hell and darkness, you know? So there's, there's that. And then there's the microcosm too, which is day and night.
0: Yeah, exactly. They looked at it like, I mean, nature is a fractal. I think that they're right on with that idea, Mm -hmm. but then they get pretty carried away with how they extrapolate out what they think is the fractal pattern to different dimensions of scale that may or may not be accurate in particular, like, you know, the greater cycles of time that they constantly would flub and have to try to redo. Yeah. Yeah, And then with uh, Arion, I just wanted to point out too, his fantastic myth of being kidnapped by pirates is a that's a Bacchus myth as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of these are going to there. This is what I was saying earlier, like a lot of these are the same things repackaged because that's how you that's really how you convert people into new systems. You don't do it through preaching. And and a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that because they want to believe it's possible in the ancient world that someone could preach for a year and become worldwide famous. just doesn't work that way. You know, this is like, this shit is so old. The very people that had the ability to travel were these types that possessed this knowledge, which is you're not getting if you're a commoner. You'd have to be initiated into it. And so... Continuing with this like motif or like this this theme, because you're starting to see this like Phoenician undertone. Thurwall wrote, it can scarcely be doubted that these legends embody recollections of arts introduced or refined by foreigners who attracted the admiration of the rude tribes they visited. It may be questioned whether the policy of the Phoenicians ever led them to aim at planting independent colonies in the islands or on the continent of Greece and whether they did not content themselves with establishing factories, which they abandoned when their attention was diverted to another quarter. But it is highly probable that wherever they came, they not only introduced the products of their own arts, but stimulated the industry and invention of the natives, explored the animal and vegetable rich soil, riches of the soil and increased them By new plants and methods of cultivation, undoubtedly also their sojourn, even where it was transient, not was not barren of other fruits, some of which were rather noxious than useful. There are several parts of the Greek mythology which bear strong marks of Phoenician origin. And I wonder if he's being literal and talking about maybe they brought like invasive species or if he's talking about the systems of priest class or priestcraft that accompanied them wherever they went. And part of me thinks that that is what he's talking about. But that's kind of me just seeing what I want to see. I'm not going to lie.
0: Another thing to add in about the dolphin, writing the dolphin, is in the work of John McHugh, where he's looking at the cuneiform Names of stars and asterisms, the Delphinus constellation actually has wordplay in it referring to a child or like a a sacred child, basically.
1: Yeah. And can I play devil's advocate real quick with that picture? Sure. There's no inscription on it. So how do we even know that that intruscan vase or trucian vase is representative of Aryan on the back of a dolphin. I mean, I I know that it's it's there, but like, what if someone had no idea, but maybe they saw that myth or read it myth and then they recreated it and they literally had no intention of like signifying that without an inscription. You know what I'm saying? Like in one possibility, it's not guaranteed that whoever made that had the myth or the, the astronomy in mind when they made that, you know? So that's another... That's another wrench, you know. If you're being like, if we were trying to convict someone in, of murder, how strong would that evidence be, you
2: know? Sure, sure. Hey, uh, Chance, do you mind going back one slide? I'm just spitballing here, and as uh, okay, one more slide. As Dylan said, uh, it's all a clusterfuck at this point. Um, but you know, this is really interesting because the claws, whether they're lobster for sure or uh, crab claws, very Cancerian. Cancer is sometimes depicted yeah. as either uh, a crab or a lobster it's been a few other things over time um but noticing that we are looking at a severed head here um i can't help but think of john is the is that a severed
1: head though or is that connected Do you see on the left mario
2: is that like his body like a slivering like i'm not sure like, you know Do you see that? on the right it
1: certainly looks kind of yeah, like a head Yeah, for sure right you no know, for sure it's definitely just the head on the right it looks
2: Yeah, and so I was just thinking of John the Baptist, and uh, there's depictions of John the Baptist, and uh, he has really wild hair, right? And he's kind of like a wild man sort of thing. And he was decapitated. That's the whole story, right? The decapitation of St. John the Baptist, and uh, his day actually takes place during cancer. And so even like St. John's Wort, which is about St. John the Baptist, when you make certain tinctures and stuff uh, using St. John's Wort, the tincture is blood red. And they say that the best time to harvest St. John's wort is uh, during July, early July, which is cancer. So I'm just kind of throwing all of that out there. I'm not sure. And uh, he also represents Aquarius, which we're in. So like that, that
1: the the astrotheological drama that's playing out is uh, in at the end of August when the sun is in Leo, Harad. And so at that time of the year, John's head is at, at, uh, I think it's when this was started, I think it was like two in the morning or whatever when this happened. So when, when his, uh, constellation just starts coming up, you just see the head of, uh, whatchamacallit, of Aquarius.
2: And so that's where
1: the beheading symbolism, uh, relies on, or, uh, it takes place. That's the drama that's playing out in the stars, and so her gotcha. is is le- yeah. It's been like it's been like five years since I learned that, but um, it's in oh, one. It's it's, I think it's in my first or second book, but it's a little. I wasn't prepared to talk about it, but it is. Yeah, I think it. I I think when it, it was like half past two in the morning, but I could be wrong on that account. No worries. No but worries. Again, this is all according to like you know. This is also according to like free masonic stuff too. You know, so you don't know. How much of it, but the Masons are the Christians. Like, let's make no mistake about it. Everything that the Masons have, they start in the bowels of the cathedrals in the churches. That's that's they're all the same fold. So these people who are saying like Masons are satanic and not Christian, they don't know what they're talking about whatsoever at all. That needs to be established.
0: I want to um, point out another couple of things about this in terms of it being maybe representative of Aquarius, which is also uh EA in the Sumerian who are they actually according to Sumer- Sumerianologists <laughs> if that's if I can use that made up word they actually do attribute EA or Inky to the Aquarius constellation specifically but above or to the left you have it uh, looks like a sea goat so that would be bordering Aquarius right and then on the other side of him there are two fishes so maybe there's some I mean, this is one of those things like you can't necessarily look at a piece of art and project on our current understanding of mythology. Well, if we can see the
1: whole damn thing, it might help. It's tough because I think a lot of people who take these pictures, they don't know what they're looking at. So they're not thinking about like what people like you guys could see in it. You know what I mean?
0: Well, what's really I think the most interesting symbol is the boat above him. It doesn't have a it's just the front of the boat, (laughs) just the prow.
1: Is it or is it like, you know what I mean? Because the boat itself almost kind of has like a fish. Like it almost seems on the right, there's like some sort of prow coming up, but I could be wrong. And like the back, it's like the tail of a fish almost, you know? Well, whether or not that's accurate, he's also got
0: Cupid in the boat, which is Eros. You know, it's a little baby looking guy with wings. That's literally Cupid. And the important thing about Eros too, is the, that we're talking about, Any of the Flood heroes are representative of Eros. And the reason for that in the mythos is that at the destruction and renovation of the world, the belief was that as Brahm, the creator god, goes into sort of a repose or quits creating the world or imagining it into existence, that symbolically that's represented by, you know, when uh, another example of this would be the sky and the earth being too close together copulating. And so there's no space for life in the Egyptian mythos. And then Shu has to separate Nut and Geb to create, you know, the space for life to take place. Well, that space between mother and father, the poles, that's where the divine spark jumps. And that's the erotic energy or attraction between the male and the female that brings forth the generative power of both to create the sacred child of the Trinity symbolically. So that's why the savior is Eros, the erotic force, if you will. And, and there's more to say about that, but these what's important, I think, is the, as Higgins put it, Alex, or Godfrey Higgins in Apocalypse, he says the the cycles of time were like men and died of old age. So as one era of time comes to a close, there's a new Eros to represent the new era, which is the new incarnation of the being. So whenever Noah comes about and the world is recreated from his birth out of the boat. And by the way, in some of the ancient, uh, some of the stuff I've looked at, Noah actually goes into the, into the ark as an old man and comes out as a baby. So he's being born out of, (laughs) he's being born out of the earth or born out of the ark. He's like meant to be the reincarnation of Adam. He's the primordial father, primordial parent. And so each time the cycle repeats itself and, uh, you know, a new eros or a new era comes about. And then there's the interesting thing about arrows being fired from a bow well the bow is the front of the ship the bow
1: and also a bow is like that you that's fire that. arrows aspirate that the p and b interchange prow is basically bow just drop the r exactly and
0: then what do you what do you what did the uh what's another word for a bow that you fire arrows out of an arc yeah <laughs> because it's well, shaped also like an arc.
1: if that is indeed arrows in the boat then that's cupid and so then that is Poseidon. Right, he shoots you with his arrow and then you are lovesick
0: and like, then you want to get it on. So that's the erotic principle. That's the erotic force between the mother and the father is the savior, because without that spark of sexual attraction, there would be no recreation of the world or regeneration in the form of children being created.
1: Right. But what I want to say from just from like a historical or, or like interpretation, if that is Cupid, so the old name for Pisces was, um, Venus and Cupido, Venus and Cupid. And so they merge to become Neptune. And that's why Neptune originally ruled that const or, yeah, that, uh, constellation or sign. So if that is Cupid, that to me would be, um, Poseidon or Neptune, which would then t- tie into the, uh, but I can't, you know, I can't tell because it, it I, is that his hand? Is that wings? I can't like the art that we have available. That's not good enough to make a.
0: Yeah, It looks like wings. I can see two arms in front of him, but yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah, yeah. We're just, I doing can't, our best I'm looking educated at a smaller
1: screen. Here. Like I'm looking at a smaller screen because <laughs> I have my notes up on. So I can't really see it.
2: And, uh, speaking of bows too, rainbows being connected to not only rain, obviously, but flood myths too, right? Kind of signaling the end of yeah. Noah's whole saga, right? And then you have this nice arc, this nice bow, uh, at the top of the canvas. And then, uh, boat symbolism, basically, there's like a direct correlation with the crescent moon, you know? So I kind of just see almost like a symbolic crescent moon with the boat. Uh, and then in between the claws, I'm just seeing a lot of Cancerian stuff because cancer, uh, is ruled by the moon. What you just yeah, said I mean, just is so like crucial,
0: Mario. Crap. Like, that's something I've been pondering for a few days. I also came across that in Higgins in Anacalypsis. He said the crescent moon symbol is a symbol of the ark or the argo. And I was like, whoa, that really changes the story of certain very popular symbols. Like, what's on the head of the high priestess card? She's got the crescent moon symbol on her head, but makes more sense to me that that's the arga. Because, you know, she's <laughs> the moon isn't even always going
1: to get to Minerva and Athena. You better settle down. I can see your screen. OK, okay. I'll hold that. I'll hold that thought because I have a <laughs> you know, I have a good. No, but you're right. you're right. You're right. Because the, the moon and the wisdom coming from the head of Tina. That's basically what Athena means. Even in the Celtic, we're going to get to it.
2: Nice. But, nice. Yeah. And then yeah, moon yeah. symbolism, obviously just being so receptive in every which way, you yeah, know, and a lot um, of these
1: are moon and sea, right? Like, so she's also the day, de- you know, like she'll, mm-hmm. she'll be the deity of like both personification of both of them, you know, or the Virgo or, you know, there's, there's like multifaceted things. And that's sure. what's so confusing to me about all of this. Like if it, it's just like you, it's almost like how many things can they be attributed to? You know, it's like, why are they all attributed to the same friggin' things? Why is there, you know what I mean? And, and again, the only way I can practically look at this is it's because um, they need these systems to convert into next systems in the old days. Not so much now because they have social media, but this type of stuff was equivalent to like the social media back in the day to
2: entertainment. You know? Sure. Is this showing the waters above and below, by the way? Just thinking out loud. Yeah, it looks like it. What you I don't just know. Said, I don't, though, Dylan, I don't is, that,
1: If that's a really floor, crucial. I was going to say, if it's a floor, I don't, I don't know. If it's a wall, yes. If it's a floor, I don't know. It could just be, but it definitely looks like it.
0: Well, what you just said, though, that is something that I try to explain with all this, too, is that why we see so many rehashes and alternate versions of the same thing. Because <laughs> I, I liken it, the best comparison I can make is to comic books and how there's comic book reboots, comic book movie reboots. But if you go into the canon of like Marvel comics, there are 55,000 different origin stories of Spider-Man or Iron Man retold with similar elements, but not exactly the same, up to date to the modern of the writer who put it together that one time. So, you know, I think that the symbolic canon coming from the stars as it is is being rewritten, retold over and over again, maybe even rebooted in some cases on purpose because the previous corpus of information got too unwieldy for whatever culture is using it. So they're like, it's only this now. This is all
1: you need to know now. It's a rebranding, you know? Well, you see the same thing with languages, right? You look at like if in in a bit, I'm going to show you a attrition. There are looks like a D. You draw the line a little bit longer And then you get the Greek R, which looks like our P. Then you go up to Scandinavia and the Norse rune, the P is like a W. You see, like what we're seeing here in art is exactly what also they did with language. And there is an explanation for that. But it it, it all goes back to a time when people were illiterate. And so when these systems collapse and people have to or people are sent abroad, they're going to have their own systems, right? Like. You have in certain times you had to create your own alphabet as part of being an initiate. That's why there's so many of them. So different schools are going to use this. You know what I mean? And that's basically what you have. But it's all the same system, just rehash. And once you see that, it's easier to learn languages. And then
0: there's another layer on top of that, which is when there are so many different alphabets. And, you know, again, I know that <laughs> you don't love the Sumerian example, but the way the system reflects in, in the cuneiform of ancient Babylon does really support all the other versions of the symbolism we see elsewhere now trying to I'll put get that on into board chronological with
1: it, as soon as somebody can establish something from an older time but when when you have like this stuff really kind of emerging in the 1700s given the archaeological fraud that's happened I'm highly suspect you know yeah and that's 100% fair. I'll You're get like on maybe. board when people can establish it. That is like going back to, the, you know what I mean? But when it's all, all the, a lot of the stuff that people are clinging to right now are all a part of like the height of archeological charlatanry, which we're still kind of in, but it was like really bad back then.
0: Yeah. And that's, that is absolutely a fair point too. But what I, you know, if, if it was real, if it is real, the mm-hmm. cuneiform logogram system of abbreviations, there would be this is what I've gathered from looking at it. The different regions in in that area would have their own lexicons of abbreviations for the spoken language. And then later priests, astronomers would have these older lexicons from one place, from another place. And then they're combing through that and seeing like, well, this could mean 12, 13, 16 different things based on what our you know, what it was meant in the past to say and that. The belief was that being able to read in between the lines, the way that we kind of can, can get very led down a path by synchronicity whenever we study this stuff, that what they could pick apart in the poetic or green language or the twilight speak of what it was they were looking at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sounds like is like all that type of thing that they considered that that constituted divine revolution, revelation, and that that was what like in a judicial astrology sense. They're projecting backwards instead of forwards. Instead of predicting the future, they're saying this is this must be what happened in the past, and then you know that makes perfect sense with their doctrine of sort of a cyclical eternal return, where everything has to happen again the same way as it happened before, uh, eternally.
1: Yeah, and when... um, they're not the only ones that abbreviate, right? There's a lot of Roman inscriptions that are a pain in the ass to look at. Cause if you don't, they, they do abbreviate as well. And so if you don't know what that means, it's, it's, it's really difficult, you know? So there, you know, that system is used. Like I'm not knocking, I'm not saying that like they're, they're, that whoever created it didn't do something really good, but I need to see, I need something from the antiquity. And when you look at a trilingual and in, inscription, for those who don't know, I'm talking about the Behistun. Inscription in the side of a mountain. Go look it up. It's visible to everybody. How the hell did nobody in the ancient world notice that? And why is it all coming to light? After the 1700s. So that's just where I'm coming from. But again, you know, if somebody can if, you know, if I'm just one of those people, if you can prove it, I'll get on board. If you can't prove it, I can't touch it. In terms <laughs> yeah, of like you know with I mean? yourself that way. I'm, I, yeah, that's exactly. I have very high standards for myself because I don't want to accidentally lead people astray. You know what I mean? Well, let's get into some of your notes about the Pulaski yeah. here. Well, so let's keep going. So you can see these those children of the sea here, right? The telekines, these storks or pelagi. For those who don't know, pelagi comes from pelasios in uh, Greek. That means stork. And they're birds of the seas, or you could call them Aves Maria, right? Because Maria is plural for mare. So Maria means seas. You always see these people trying to translate Ave as rejoice or hail and all this other nonsense, but it also is bird. So if it's not what they say it is, then you're looking at Ave Maria as a bird of the seas or the navigators, the inventors of the reaping hook and the spreaders of the arts of the smithy. Now. Something to note about the Greeks, according to Jacob Philip Falmerier, the modern population of Greece is not descended from the ancients, but of Slavonic races. Now, according to Bethem, the Greeks or Hellenes were in a state of absolute barbarism and ignorance when they were first visited by the Phoenician mariners, and consequently were as incapable of writing in after ages their own previous history as the inhabitants of the sandwich islands previous to their first discovery by the British navigators. And I I mean, he's, that's, that's kind of extreme because he's (laughs) the sandwich islands are off the South coast or the coast of South America and Antarctica. But uh, he said also, nor can we expect from the Greeks, any but a confused and vague account of the great maritime people by whom they were civilized. Now, Thurwall wrote, we arrive at the same conclusion If we inquire into the particular regions occupied by the Pelagians, for then we find that according to an ancient tradition, they were not spread uniformly over Greece, but that while in some districts they are mentioned exclusively, in others they appear among the crowd of other tribes, and in others, again, no trace of them can be found. It is my opinion that this is because they are not Greeks. He continues, A district or a town in the southeast of Thessaly is mentioned as the Pelagian Argos. The opinion entertained by some of the ancients is this Argos was a part of the great Thessalian plain, one region of which bore the name Pelagiotis. In the latest period of Greek history is confirmed by Strabo's remark that the word Argos signified a plain, P-L-A-I-N, in the dialects of Thessaly and Macedonia. However, I've seen people object to this and say he was guessing or speculating. In the richest portion of this tract on the banks of Peneus stood one of the many cities called Larissa, a word which is perhaps no less significant than Argos, and according to one derivation, may have meant a fortress or a walled town. Most of the Larissas known to have been found in very ancient times may be clearly traced to the Pelagians. There is therefore good reason for believing that the word belonged to their language and for considering it as an indication of their presence. And this is where it's going to get good because you've just put up Clark's inscription. Why does this matter? If you see this, the iota eta, which looks like I-H, on Clark's inscription, according to Higgins, is the I-E of the Delphic Temple, Yod-He, right, I-E, or Yah of the Jews, it means God, the Yah of Sanskrit, or the Apollo, or Apol, or A-Bol, like Ada Bol. I'm sorry, Hey bowl. Sorry, I was thinking Greek and Phne- uh, Hebrew. I was mixing them up, but it would be the same thing. Hey bowl, the God Bol, or Baal. And bowl. Um, in Hebrew, it's it's like B-O-L, because they use an iron, which is a Phoenician O. But, Bael is also pal because the P and B interchange or bell, B-E-L, or pel, pelicans, as in pelagi, storks. I suspect this also encodes able. Now, this is why Bell is called the great confounder. Again, it's the farrago. So here you have the inscription of the youth of Larissa that betrays an etrusco phoenician or Pelagic origin as admitted that the cities of Larissa are Pelagic, who are interchangeable with the Etrusco-Phoenicians. And on that inscription, see that top? That's Christos. You have Christ at the top of that, longer, way before Christ, along with I-H. His, that's the root of Jesus, of Yov, or Tetragrammaton, right? yod He vav That yod is I-E, or it's J-H. Or it's I H it's the root of Jesus, right? That, that is that that word is
0: everywhere. I'll just say I found it in the book of Isaiah. <laughs> if you look at the, uh, the, I believe I, I remember, I don't remember if it was the Latin version, the Vulgate of the book of Isaiah in the old Testament, or if it was the Greek Septuagint, but in that prophecy, that is attributed to Jesus, where supposedly Isaiah is prophesizing the coming of the savior, savior, even though he's specifically alluding to Cyrus. <laughs> Cyrus is called, and this is not yes. in the KJV, but he's called Christos.
1: Yeah. And what's Isaiah? It's got Isa. That's Arabic of G of Christ. Aisha, right? Ishvada. It's all the same root. This is the system. And so look at the bottom. You see that? It looks like it's Eta Rho Omega Sigma. That is E-R-O-S. Eros. So you have Eros, Apollo, Jesus. You have it all in one inscription. Now you could say this is a forgery. They didn't have photos back then, so they had to do uh, the best they could by copying stuff. Um, so that would, you know, it, it could be a forgery, right? In which case none of this would matter. However, Eros is also Cupid, as we were just talking, and Apollo of Athens was known as Cuneus. And in ancient Britain, you'll see those inscriptions in the holy sailors, Cuno Bellinus, the Apollo or the, the Apollo of the Britons or Apollo, the ancient bell. And so do you have well, just attention? throw out there, too, that the word yeah, Ark, ahead. the word Ark, as it
0: comes to us in Greek as arke, meaning head is also a reference to wisdom and hala or bella hala. that's
1: wisdom so when we're talking about pelasgi we're now, real talking real quick about let me back you Arch- up in case let me Archaeans. back you up in case anybody's got something to say about that that arke meaning top or head in greek they would have used protos if they're talking about first right and rashid Where is this coming from? That's the express authority of the Targums of Jerusalem and Maimonides. Moses Ben Maimonides, the most learned rabbi. This is not coming from YouTubers pulling shit out of their ass, guys. I just want to do that in case there's somebody that sees what you're saying is like, oh, that's not archaic. Archaic means in the beginning, you know. (laughs)
0: Okay. So the other thing to point out too, is just even like more philology, the Pindus mountains here on the plain of Thessaly. Pindus is Pontus.
1: Yes. Philologically, it's the exact same word. Yeah. Do you have the Phoenician, I'm sorry, the Trucian mirrors that I sent you? Looks like okay, we're a little you, out of, maybe that's
0: not in order, but um, we'll, let's just maybe get into a couple of these slides real quick and then we'll get to those uh, inscriptions. I wanted to show the Arga <laughs> as it's known in Hindu Hinduism. So it's like, Mar- Mario, you'll like this because it's like a water pouring vessel, a ritual water pouring vessel called an Arga. But the Arga is also a reference to this thing right here that you see on the right, the which is a yoni plus a lingam symbol, and if we go forward, there we have Ishvara, Lord of the Boat, pretty sure, and it's even square, like you would see in other versions of the of Noah's Ark being square for some reason. And then if we go forward again, here is the God coming out of a lotus, and it's because of one awesome. of the
1: translations, it means strong box, arca. That's why it's square.
0: Yeah, ex- yeah, uh, that is accurate. <laughs> and then this lotus symbol, though, of the god emerging out of the lotus, sometimes that would be interchanged instead of the boat that the savior rode on. It would be a lotus, but it's the same. It, it is in means the same thing.
1: And what is the yeah. lotus known as? The cradle of the sun. And that's why you see Buddha, Ra all of these uh krishna riding on the sitting on the lotus and all those artworks and sculptures etc is it a coincidence that that sounds like logos no and it's not coincidence that the all these alphabets are named after like the leaves the lotus petals all that stuff it's it's that is that's what everyone's missing with this because a lot of people um get caught up they can't get over the sun symbolism but they don't realize the deeper symbolism of that, which is wisdom, which is logos, which is letters, which is the alphabet, which is the word. These are gods of the languages of communication. It's pretty obvious, but I think people are just hung up on the religious aspects of it that they can't see it.
0: Yeah. And to add to that, just the name of a what's the name of a boat? In the Egyptian, that was robed as by the deities was called a bark, <laughs> like that's what you trees have. Yeah, there's trees b
1: b a r k bark. or b a r q u e.
0: Yeah, and that's an entire symbolic thread that we could pull on for the next twenty five minutes if we wanted to. But I want to give you guys uh, some time for first hour closing thoughts, and then we have. Plenty more to talk about in the second half. I wouldn't be surprised if the second half went a little more than an hour, but yeah, we're at about that time. So we'll pause for now.
1: Perfect. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, make sure you like and share the video if you appreciated it. And um, I guarantee you're going to, if you're not a subscriber to chances on his other channels, you're going to want to hear the second hour. It's worth it. It's worth whatever pittance you're going to spend. Even if it's only a monthly subscription, get in there and uh, listen to it. It's going to be worth it. And you can find my work, everything, my socials, uh, my podcast, all of that, and my sub stack all at beacons, B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash great tide, G-R-E-A-T-T-I-D-E. Thank you for listening.
0: Well, yeah, Mario, you've been a little quiet, so we don't have to rush it. But if you want to make some commentary here and then lead that towards, you know, plugging yourself, that'd
2: be great. (laughs) Yeah, no, I just love looking at new artwork and getting new insights uh, on things. So I've been taking screenshots, uh, writing down some notes. Uh, Definitely some of this stuff is outside of my wheelhouse, uh, but it's all very interesting uh, nonetheless. And so I do have some stuff regarding the arc, arc symbolism, et cetera. But we can unpack that, I think, in the second hour. Um, but people are... Can you give us than- just a
0: little taste, like a little, you know, Argaful? I mean spoonful.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, where I come at, um I think that uh sun symbolism obviously has its place, but you guys know me, I'm really interested in kind of integrating sun sun, solar, uh, uh moon, lunar symbolism along with uh polar symbolism with the pole star. So, I've been looking into Actually, it's very interesting that I've been reading this book called The Celestial Ship of the North. So, it's right here. And, uh, it equates a lot of, uh, Who's that arc. By? so it's, uh, E. Valencia Straighton. And, um, it's fascinating because it gets into a lot of Northern, uh, Polaris symbolism with a great goddess. And they attribute, uh, her to being kind of like an ark or a seed. And, uh, you know, it's newer information for me, but I think that there's something to it personally. And so um that's kind of my perspective is that some of the symbolism uh is Polaris uh based. And so as an example, uh the Arctic, right? You know, and then the Arctic having a correspondence with the northern sky and things like that. So I just I'll have just a different say, can I let me throw in on that. I think that please. we're looking at I think that personally
0: you are onto something with that. I I see it too, but that maybe there's a micro, macro dimensions of scale, dimensions of time spans thing going on where the <laughs> the solar symbolism is there for the year, right? And then whenever you get into the larger cycles, like the processional cycles, now we're looking at more of a northern thing going on. So I think that probably just like you can find multiple versions of the dove that's released from the arc in the constellations, I think you can find multiple versions of this stuff and what, you know, I know that's frustrating to Dylan who wants to get down to like, this is what we can actually prove about it. But I'll say the whole idea of the savior who is also the rock, right? That this is another version of the symbolism would be the millstone. The, and then the pole of the north is churning the milky waters of the heavens or the celestial mill. And like even in the Finnish mythology, I found out recently that they have a story of Sampao, Sampo, <laughs> which is basically the same as the the Chinese solar deity Sanpo. Same name,
1: but it's Finnish. Po, which is Buddha, the Buddha? Foe pho <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, ex- yeah, it is there. It's totally
0: there. So this, yeah. So, so like my thing on Buddha the on some
1: it. of that stuff that you're saying, like, it's not that I'm not saying it's there. It's just modern. Like for like a lot. So there's script. There's texts like where like. How many people have we heard of like like uh, Mary called the star of the sea, right? There are people that would consider Mary the North Star. The problem is, is all that's based on like a transcription error. And so if you were to like go into the Bible or the Vulgate, you will never see her referred to as the star of the sea. And nowhere will you see Ave Maria Stella in the Vulgate. So that's my thing is I'm not saying that people haven't done that. But the way I approach this is for history purposes. So I'm not trying to like, uh, unless it, unless that pole symbolism like dates something, like if, if there's something there, like in an ancient way, that's going to give us an exact date of something, then I'm all about it. But a lot of it for me, the reason I don't focus on it is because it's modern. That's what it is. It's not like I have anything against it or like, it's like, uh, Like I'm like Karen over here getting triggered by it.
2: (laughs) No, no, I totally get it. And I think it's ancient, dude. Uh, Look between your legs, you know. And so uh, I tend to say that uh, it all comes down to poles and holes. So I think that a lot of symbolism that, you know, is phallic in nature is just uh, emblematic of the world axis. But I'm being specific about Mary. as Like there's direct symbolism. Mary's actually called the star of
1: the sea and people actually have associated with her being Polaris. Navigators, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. That That's a legit thing. It goes back hundreds of hundreds. It's a Middle Ages thing. But I'm just saying, like, as far as the Bible is concerned, where this character is created from, that she's not the pole star in terms of the scripture.
2: So do you think, quick question, um, you know, what do you think about, are you interested at all in the transition from geocentrism to heliocentrism? And do you think that... Uh, do you guys want me to show
1: you where heliocentrism comes from? It doesn't come from Christianity. I have the letter right here included in this.
2: I can read it. It's from. It's a Muslim. Ooh, I'm interested. <laughs> Personally, I mean, is, yeah, that, want, is
0: that? Can we tease that into the second hour? Then do you want me? To, you want me to
1: get going on it? Hold on. Oh, yeah, dude, well.
2: I would. I would seriously love to hear that. Get that for sure. ready for yeah. the second hour. That's a great tease. So,
1: there, so let me give you guys a recommendation for a book. It's not going to reveal a lot of shit you're interested in. But it is such a beautiful command of language. It's one of the most beautiful package of letters I've ever read. If you pull, if you search, uh, it's called, I think it's called Turkish spy in Paris. And again, if you're reading it to like get the secrets of the universe or some like massive decode, you're not going to really find anything, but there is something. And the reason I came upon this is because there's an illusion of one of the kings of Europe having land in Americas or some shit that he doesn't even know how much land he owns or whatever. There's, there's, there's some stuff that, that, that made me, that was, I'm interested in, you know, into my work into um, the Americas, but yeah, that, that heliocentrism shit. I, I don't know what page is on. I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to pull it up on a on a document. I can do that right now. Give me one second. Oh, just do that during the intermission and then. We'll yeah, know. I'll do it. And uh, yeah, I can read that to you, but it's interesting and, and it it is coming from Muslims. 100 nice. because they're even like you got to guard it from the Jews and those ambitious Nazarenes.
2: <laughs> oh, interesting. No, I totally yeah. want to hear that. Uh, but just to wrap things up uh, one other thing I just wanted to mention regarding voyage symbolism, journeying symbolism, the way I tend to interpret it is that there's a little literal physical representation of journeying, whether you're in a car or a boat or riding a horse, whatever. Uh, but there's also a uh, allegorical aspect that has to do with the journey of the soul. And also has to do with the afterlife, and so psychopomp symbolism, going to the other side, etc. So when I think of arc symbolism, I think of literal arcs, but I also think of um, the journey, you know, to the great beyond. If you want what's to say, what's the royal so, ark? Uh, I mean, we could. I mean, I could show you some images. What's, of the, what's the, the, the Keystone of the Royal Ark? It's yeah, cancer, it's little, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly so right. Yep, 100%. Like I said, there's, 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 there's multiple ways it's, it's how it's used. That's the Farago. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're, you're totally right. Um, but people can reach me at symbolicstudies.com. And so you can find all my socials there and everything else. But this has been fun, dude. I, I love, uh, I I appreciate the fact that we come from different angles.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, this it is what it is. Like, I don't think my work conflicts with anybody other than if you're going against older observable things, right? Like I don't, for me, it's not about like trying to like, uh, you don't know this and you don't know that it's just, no, I'm interested in trying to get a historical reference. So that's why, that's why I do what I do, you know? Nice. And you guys are much better at like the interpretations of like the arts and all like the tarot stuff, you know, like I used to get into that, but the thing is, is like, well, Who's creating it and where are the systems of rule that we could like, how do we know they're following or adhering to a system that, you know what I mean? That is part of the priest crap. I'm interested. I guess this is it. I'm interested in exposing the priest class so we can once and for all throw their yokes off of our shoulder and get away from them. And we can't do that unless people know how deep this priest class. If you told me I would have gotten into astro theology and all that shit like 10 years ago, I would have said you're crazy. (laughs) But that's where, the, that's where it took me. If you want to know about the tree, priests, you're not going to get away from language, astrology, mythology, navigation, masonry. And We're going to get into it next hour, especially if people like megaliths and polygonal cyclopean masonry, all that stuff. Got, I got a lot prepared to show you guys. Hell yeah.
2: Well, dude. I'll Keep finish this you, off
0: with. I'll, let me finish this out with a. Uh, well, Mario, you say your thing. Say, <laughs> finish what you're about to say.
2: I uh, was just giving Dylan props. He should keep doing his thing. Absolutely, he's crushing oh, it. Thank
0: you. He's so crushing. <laughs> so many
1: books, so fast. I'm trying, man. Can't wait to read the. Uh, tomorrow's the, not uh, promised. You know, sometimes you know, as the older you get, you start realizing tomorrow's not promised. And what I learned is go till you burn out, because when you burn out. That godly, that creative force, whatever it is you want to call it, it takes over, and so you're never going to know what you're made of until you burn out. Don't be afraid to burn out in your work. Just do the it Phoenix and yeah, something else will yeah, something else will power you up for sure. That's
0: awesome. yeah that, I mean, you can learn that in any avenue of life, athletics, you know intense intellectual pursuits, but when you combine both of those things together to the burnout level, you get to find out you know what's your metal. I really like that. I'm going to finish us off. Well, not finish us off. I'll also give Dylan a chance to do plugs one more time, but I want to read. No, I'm i I good. I'm good. All right. Well, the book I mentioned, Origin of Pagan Idolatry by George Faber. You know, this is, I wanted to read this, brief, not too brief, it's a little long quote from that book because it demonstrates exactly the purpose for why, you know, Dylan is doing things at the angle he's doing it at to throw off the yoke of rulership and prove that, there's there's still no separation between church and state. It's always been one. So, you know, as I read this, just think about what we see happening in the world lately and how baffling it is to see the world going in some of the directions it's going in against nature, against common sense. Okay. So this is from Faber 1816. Now it was the ordinary custom of the priests and priestesses to personate the deity whom they served. They assumed his titles, imitated his character, ascribed to themselves his attributes, and endeavored to exhibit to the life the principal circumstances of his mythological history. These notions produced the corruptions of the phallic worship and the solemn prostitution of female virtue, when the great father and the great mother were considered as two distinct persons, severally presiding over the powers of generation. But... When they were viewed as a single person partaking of both sexes and alone presiding over both powers, it is easy to conceive what monstrous enormities were the consequence among a race of theologists who deemed it laudable and meritorious to imitate in their own persons the supposed character and actions of their deity. The priests, while they assumed the titles of their God, Studied also to take upon them his imagined hermaphroditic nature. They wore the dress and copied the manners of women. They literally, urged to the deed by a frantic enthusiasm, ceased to be men. And while they endeavored in imitation of their deity to partake of both sexes, they really failed to partake of either. (laughs) It's a headshot. Uh, Scripture abounds in allusions to the practices attendant upon this mode of worship and in order to preserve the Israelites from being contaminated by them, it strikes at the root of evil by specifically prohibiting men to appear in the garb of women or women in the garb of men. Suffice it to observe that the practices in question were such that the land of Canaan is even said in the nervous metaphorical phraseology of Holy Writ, to have vomited out in very disgust its polluted inhabitants. Nor were such deeds peculiar to Canaan, nor yet were they merely the result of a depraved appetite. They prevailed more or less in every part of the pagan world from India even to America, and flowed as an immediate practical consequence from the religious theory, which had been adopted relative to the amalgamation of the two great parents. So...
1: (laughs) Yeah, and check out this book that Chance narrated. You'll learn who the Israelites were and what Israel meant to the Phoenicians. It's a Phoenician word. And it's a Greek quote that's in there, but you'll, there's, there's a lot of layers to this stuff. And you can find answers in really old things, but you're not going to find it in English speaking text. It's just too old. <laughs> yeah. Or you, will, you might find a reference to it in an English text, but you better be able to transliterate Greek <laughs> or Hebrew <laughs> or you know, Latin and all that other stuff.
0: So I just dropped it in the chat, a link to the narration for God's Acre of Winds of the Soul. Although it looks like the link maybe didn't work right. Let me redo re
1: that. It's amazing. It's you favor. know what's great about it is because like the eBooks work really good for reference, right? So whenever you need to come up with a subject, you can't, it's like good for like after already reading it, reading it. But like the the audible, it really is a nice thing to be able to sit and you could even close your eyes. And just listen to, you know what I mean? And you 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 articulate it in a way that's at a nice slow pace so you can take it in and it's not just going like really fast and people are like, wait, what is he? You know what I mean? Like you do it at a good pace, so people it's it's really worth it. Oh, and here's a technique. If you've never had um, if you've never had uh, an audible subscription, you can get a free month as like their trial and use that to uh download uh a god's acre and chance and i still get paid and then if you like it when the next month comes around and it's time to enroll it's like 15 bucks you can go through the other series and it's like being able to get imagine being able to get like five books for what 30 or 60 dollars something like that like it's not you know if you were to buy them in paperback it costs a lot more so it's it's a really good way for, for people who are strapped for cash yeah,
0: exactly that. So do us a favor, open up this URL.com link that I posted in the chat or find it in the show episode description. You know, open that up and <laughs> get an audible trial or reactivate your account or whatever you got to do or just leave it there and think about it. Give it just think about it. I think you're going to want to listen to it. <laughs> and so uh, my buddy David of Wisdom Traders, he just put out a really great new musical album called The Center is Everywhere. And I recommend people check that out as well. It's linked in the show notes. But that will be our musical intermission while we take about three and a half minutes between the first hour and the Rockfin exclusive second hour. It will be uploaded to my Patreon as soon as I can after we're done talking. Uh, Might not be till the morning, but we'll see you guys next time for the free crowd. We're going to have a great show on Wednesday for you for Vibrant. And thanks, everyone, for being here. See you on the Rockfin side.